Hi, thanks very much. Um, really pleased to be here. I really appreciate the time to come and speak with you. I'm Roger Baker. I'm a detective with the Madison Police assigned to the South District. I've uh, been with the department a little bit over 27 years, and I'm here with my colleague. I'm uh, Jan Miyazaki from Project Respect, and we've been working in the city and the county assisting adult women who've been in prostitution um, for a number of years to access services, and then more recently, uh, since we've had anti-human trafficking laws, been working with adults and children to access the benefits of the Wisconsin and the federal anti-human trafficking legislation. Right, and my piece with this is my niche specialty, what I'm passionate about is investigations with missing children, missing exploited children, and I've been doing that pretty much on a regular basis since 2009, and I have a, a colleague, Detective Maya Krasinovich, and she did a lot of the pioneer groundwork in investigating human trafficking cases, and what we found was I was doing missing cases, she was doing trafficking cases, and the two are so tightly intertwined that they just go together, and so the last several years I've been doing human trafficking investigations again. Um, or to, doing those as well as missing case, missing person cases because they're they're so intertwined. So we just wanted to talk a little bit about what human trafficking is and what comes to mind when we hear that term human trafficking. So I just wanted to read this to you. Um, this kind of captures the essence of commercial sex trafficking, which is included in human trafficking. It says, "I'm someone's daughter, and I won't give up until I'm home again. My childhood is tarnished." I shouldn't be here, neither should my friends down the hall. I miss my family. I dream of them, but their faces are getting blurry. I'm scared I'll never see them again. And so that's a very real thing for a victim of human trafficking because they're removed from their families and they're taken by force, threats, and coercion um, away from home and often moved around from place to place. This slide, it, it it says that human trafficking is the second most profitable industry after drug trafficking. I would almost argue that in some ways it could be even more profitable for a, a trafficker than drug trafficking. With drug trafficking, a drug dealer can make a lot of money. Um, if they sell their product, they make a, a nice profit, but then they have to spend money to buy more product. A human trafficker takes his or her victims and they can sell that same victim over and over again, up to 15 times a day, day after day after day. And if they have more than one victim, they can increase their profits. And the only thing that they have to pay for is a cheap hotel room, some fast food, and some minimal expenses. And there's an organization called the Polaris Project. They do, they do a great deal of research and work with human trafficking. And I saw this about a year ago, and it's kind of a map of some of the hotspots in the country where this occurs. And it's interesting because the Midwest is one of the hotspots. Um, Madison is right between Chicago, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, and this actually occurs all over the state. Um, but I, I thought this was relevant because it does show that the Midwest is an area where there's um, a th thriving industry of human trafficking. And so I think when we hear the, the term human trafficking, we think about somebody being smuggled from one country to another country. And sometimes that does happen. There's labor trafficking. But what human trafficking is, is it's the illegal trade of humans against their will for sexual exploitation or forced labor. And it's, it's really modern-day slavery. 
So it can involve um, solicitation, transportation, exploitation of humans. Uh, it's by means of deception and coercion under the threat of violence. And it involves men, women, and children. We do have male victims. It's very difficult for male victims to come forward, and Jan could probably speak about that. Um, but they're stripped of their rights, and they're actually deemed as property, which is horrendously sad. So what does it look like? Uh, what does it look like here? So what we see is a lot of commercial sex trafficking. That's when a trafficker, we refer to them in, in the industry, they refer to themselves as pimps. And so what they're doing is they're taking victims and they're selling them often in an online content. Um, and they're selling them for, for profit. And all of the money goes to the pimps. And they, they work through threats of violence, sometimes through acts of violence and through coercion. And what we've seen a lot here is some of the dynamics the pimp may say, I know where you live, I know you have a mom, I know you have a little brother. If you try to leave, uh, we'll kill your family. We've also seen victims that have been threatened with violence, with weapons. Um, in some other cities not too far from here, um, victims have been tortured and just brutalized. And it's about maintaining control to keep that victim uh, from leaving the pimp. So to me, the biggest risk factor for a victim, for a young person, is when they're missing from home. And so kids leave home for various reasons. Sometimes they're running from something in the home. Sometimes they're attracted to things that are going on outside of the home. But when, when, a, when a juvenile is missing from home, they don't have transportation. They don't have a debit, a debit card with um, a sizable amount of money in the bank. They don't have changes of clothing. They don't have food to eat. They don't have shelter from the cold. And that's when they're most vulnerable because traffickers pick up on that and they find various ways to get in touch with these young, vulnerable um, kids and they'll start to provide for them and then it starts to change. Uh, the average age when kids are getting sought after by traffickers is as young as 12 to 14. And so often it involves um, a pimp being very nice at first, uh, taking somebody in, getting them some food to eat, having their nails done, taking them somewhere, and then it becomes... I'm spending this money on you, now you need to do something for me. And that's kind of the starting point. And the scary part is that because it's a mobile industry, they may go missing in Madison, but within a matter of hours, they may be, may be somewhere else. So we wanted to talk about um, traffickers a little bit, or um, they're called pimps in, in the trafficking industry, and there's a misspelling in the handout, so I apologize for that, but one of the terms is can be an insensitive, offensive term, and I apologize for that, but in the industry, they're called uh, gorilla pimps, and a gorilla pimp is somebody that it's not based upon um, race or ethnicity, it's a matter of conduct, and so a gorilla pimp maintains control by torture, acts of violence, uh, fear, um, can be very frightening for a victim. And uh, a Romeo pimp is a different type of pimp. That's every bit as destructive, but a different means. So a Romeo pimp uses finesse. They can be very charming and endearing, and they may target a, a, a child that has kind of fallen through the cracks and isn't used to getting a lot of attention, and it can be all of a sudden this person's paying attention to me, and he's driving me places, and he's buying me things, and he's being affectionate with me, and... The Romeo pimp um, 
will be, oftentimes will say things like, I'm your boyfriend now, you don't have to worry about anything, I'm gonna take care of you, we're gonna get you an apartment so you'll have your own place to live, but in order to do that, we have to make some money, so we just have to do this a few times. But the reality is there's never an apartment and the victim has moved from place to place and they also use threats of uh, force and coercion. So often what we see are branding and tattoos and so this is one of the saddest, saddest parts of it is that traffickers see their victims as their property and they want other traffickers to know that these victims are their property so it's not uncommon for them to to tattoo their name or something even worse on their victims. So it's a clear sign to others in, the, in this illicit industry that, that these victims belong to that particular trafficker. So social media, as a detective, I've been a detective for a while, and when I first started, you know, sometimes we would do a a search warrant for subscriber information from a phone, we might ask for incoming and outgoing toll calls, and now it's a whole different landscape. There's so many different apps that people communicate with, and some of them have um, offices that are in the United States. Some of them are in other countries that don't, um, don't acknowledge our search warrants. Uh, there's social media in various ways that traffickers and recruiters communicate with victims. And it runs the gamut, but there are new ones that are coming up all the time. And we'll talk about this in a minute. But people that recruit victims for, uh, for traffickers often use Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and different means to kind of cultivate new victims. Want to talk about bottoms a little bit here? Just to make so, so we've been working um, with adult. Oh, so we're um, so we've been working with uh, adult women for years, and we were often getting um, just to give you context on um, Madison, and we were getting lots of contacts from the school district and from concerned parents about kids about 16, 16 and a half that might be aging out of the um, child protection or juvenile justice system. And there were girls that were ending up um, from CPS going into juvenile delinquency and then later in the adult criminal justice system when I might meet her there. And um, so all we had to do was look inside of juvenile justice and look at some of the girls there from a different lens and were able to identify victims um, and get them um, adequate services. And for some of those girls, um, they had become a, a bottom for a pimp, meaning that becoming the closest person to the pimp, um, she might have a baby by him, she might believe that she's the most important um, girlfriend because he may have like a stable of girlfriends, but she's the most important one. She works her way up from maybe at 14 or 15 um, from the fringes, and then maybe by 17 she'll be a bottom. And that's really um, um, insulates the trafficker. And so, um, you know, there are times when we see 17, 18 year old girls who, you know, are so afraid of their traffickers that they end up not, you know, turning on their trafficker um, and end up um, um, being charged with crimes against other kids. So it's a tough um, uh, dynamic, a sad dynamic that um, we see girls uh, without 
being identified and directed into services go from that 13, 14-year-old girl who gets, who gets recruited, right? And then maybe by 17, in order so that she doesn't have to turn the dates anymore, start um, recruiting younger girls. But that protects the traffickers, so they, are, they have one layer that separates them from detection and law enforcement. Right, and so everybody that's involved in this, aside from a trafficker, is a victim, and so bottoms are victims too. They were one of the common denominators for trafficking victims is they're often victims of sexual abuse in addition to the sex trafficking. And so bottoms are, are victims themselves, but it's, it's a really strange dynamic when they kind of shift, like Jan was talking about, maybe to, to change their reality. And, yeah. and Some of the um, investigations that you might have been reading about in the news, though, have involved girls that were bottoms that were really brave and um, talk to law enforcement. And, you know, when we meet those girls, you know, Roger and I were talking, you know, we don't know if we could do what they could do, but I think they do it because they care about their kids, they're caring about it happening to another girl. Um, but we don't always find that out until it's too late. But, but some of the cases you've been reading about were bottoms, you know, telling law enforcement what was going on. Mm -hmm. So that's what the term means. It sounds odd. No, it can be hard. I mean, we had a, a young person that we worked with very intensely to try to keep her from this, and um, there was a, a time in, w in which she became a recruiter, and she used social media to bring in other kids that were as young as 15 that had no experience whatsoever in, in this, this type of a lifestyle. And so that, that was really difficult for me uh, to see that. Um, but we're still working with her, and she is cooperating with us, and we've made some uh, giant strides in identifying traffickers in the city. So th these are just some stats. It's a little bit dated, but up to 300,000 uh, female victims a year are sold for commercial sex in the United States. 12 to 14 years of age is the average age when this begins, and up to 15 times a day a victim can be sold. Um, for in the commercial sex industry. So what does it look like in Madison? How big is the problem? And I really wish that we could quantify that and talk about how, how big the problem is. And it's a really hard crime to measure. The, the most uh, tangible element of this whole criminal enterprise is, is that these victims are scared to death. And they're afraid for their families, they're afraid for themselves, and it's very difficult to come forward and report what happens to them. If somebody's a victim of a, a burglary or a car break-in or a robbery, that, those, are, those are things that victims report to the police, and it's, it's fairly easy to um, tally statistics and, and know how many burglaries we have or other types of crimes, but human trafficking is a real challenge. It doesn't always fit in, in different records management systems as a title that the different agencies may have. Um, sometimes it falls into, into other titles. We may investigate a missing child and it becomes a trafficking case. A uh, child may be arrested in a retail theft trying to steal something for their pimp and we learn that it's a trafficking case. Some of the cases that we have, we start with one victim, we write a search warrant for uh, the online sites that they're being advertised on and we find out that there's seven or eight victims but it's one, one case. and so. It's really hard to quantify exactly how large the problem is, but I can say is that as recently as in the last couple of weeks, we keep gaining intelligence, and we can't always turn intelligence into a case, but we keep getting more and more information through people that are speaking with us, and 
the problem the problem is is pervasive and it seems to be organized and it's um, it's happening all over the city but also with traffickers that are taking victims from here to other cities and back again so the rules so, so there isn't any systematic data collection on this particular crime but at the end of May of this year so just um, a month and a half ago there are new rules for counties um, who uh, on how they identify kids in CPS and so that's new um, that there is a there is a domain where you can um, put child sex trafficking victim in the past it was you know acting out you know out of control kids so that's a really you know good development to have have that and then the other change being that the, it's now mandatory to open a non-caregiver investigation um, by county CPS so we're going to start having more systematically collected data in the next year the only um, federal data collection that has to be reported though is um, kids who are missing from foster care that has to be um, uh, reported to the Department of Justice because of the kids being in foster care just being a risk factor itself. So there's an agency in, in Alexander, Virginia that I can't say enough about. It's called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And they have offices in different parts of the country and it's a it's a nonprofit and they do amazing work. They help us find missing kids that are exploited when they're in other cities. They connect us with other law enforcement agencies in other cities. They do education. They do family reunification. Uh, they do all kinds of things. And so we work with them all the time. And they came up with, with these statistics. And they, according you know, to their stats, one in six kids that they list as missing is a trafficking victim. And 86% of those kids that are trafficking victims are under some type of supervision from a social service agency when they become trafficked. And that doesn't mean that the social service agency is not doing a, a good job or, or isn't trying to help. Um, they're very subtle kind of flags to look for when you're trying to identify a victim that's afraid to tell you what's going on. And so it's not, it's, it's not a poor reflection on, on service agencies. It's just the stats that try to illustrate how pervasive this is even when there are agencies that are working with these children. So I, I, had, a, I had a kid that was missing last summer and she was in Chicago and we didn't know where she was. And so she, she called her mom from a trap house in Chicago and it was like a Sunday morning. And so she kind of had a description of this house and so I got a call from our officer in charge um, to talk to this mom and, and so I'm thinking trying to call somebody in Chicago for the PD is it's kind of a challenge if you don't have a connection so the National Center they connected me with a sergeant that runs a trafficking team down there and he's like no problem we'll get my team out and it was really amazing and they didn't recover her that day but they found her several days later and they recovered her so I wouldn't have been able to do that without them connecting me with them yeah. before you get into the Dallas model. Yeah. So we have a coordinated community response group that uh, we are, uh, we organize um, with Briarpatch and um, with the Madison School District, with law enforcement, with um, Dane County Human Services. But I have to say that the school district, and that's a national model, the national response model is to have uh, school districts, 
uh, law enforcement and county human services. And the way we hear about the kids, and it's kind of like the secret lives of kids, kids going to Chicago but telling their parents they're just going to their friend's house for the weekend. Um, but the school district, um, the social workers, the, um, the homeless services social workers, I mean, they have this vantage point in our community um, and we often will, they will be the first person that will detect this because a kid can go to school under the federal law at any time unaccompanied and so they often are the folks that make referrals and um, that, that we learn of these 16 year old kids or some of them, you know, younger. Mm -hmm. So this is a really challenging topic and I would probably say that it's, it's one of the most important emerging topics along with gun violence, uh, narcotics, heroin, opioid addiction issues, but trafficking unfortunately keeps getting bigger and bigger and so we try to look at different ideas. What are people doing in other parts of the country? Can I start with Mark? Yeah, please. The, um, it's really in some regards really closely tied into the heroin problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, in fact, in the Wisconsin anti-human trafficking legislation, it, there's a piece that addresses that that's not in the federal law, which is using controlled substances to manipulate um, their victim. And that's not in the federal law. That was really important because th that, that is common to use heroin to control a juvenile or an adult. Mm -hmm. Very common. So Dallas, they, have, they had a child exploitation squad in their police department in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and they kind of evolved into a high-risk victim unit. And they recognized that they had a growing problem, and their unit is, is supervised by a sergeant named Byron Fawcett, and he works with a detective. Her name is Kathy De La Paz, and they were here at our training center several years ago. We were doing training for child abduction responses. It wasn't particularly a, a training for trafficking, but they came here, and they talked about looking for the warning signs and kind of what they were doing, and so they came up with a, a method. So... Before they, they formed this unit, they, were, they, re, they handled runaway juveniles kind of in a tradi traditional way. They would find a missing kid, they would put the child in a squad car, take them home to their parent or guardian and, and kind of close the case. Um, they weren't really, in, they weren't striking up that kind of relationship of trust and uh, having an interaction, an ongoing relationship of trust with those kids and they weren't getting those disclosures about the kids being victimized. And so they determined that many of these kids become so entrenched in this lifestyle that once they're in it, it's really hard to get out of it. And sometimes they don't get out of it before something really horrific happens. And they, the most interesting thing is they determined that 80% of prostituted children in their area were missing from home in one year four times or more. So that, that was what they found. So they created this high-risk victim unit model, and so they, they made this database, and they were flagging kids that go missing four times a year or more, and when, once they identified those kids, they didn't wait for them to go missing. They take the team, and they go out into the community, and they proactively find these kids, and they start building trust, and they start a rapport with them, and they start talking to them. And they went from making 10 cases a year to identifying 200 to 300 victims in the Dallas-Fort Worth area by those proactive methods. And uh, so it was a, it was a really uh, method of success for them. And 
They found that most victims were involved were in prostitution were frequent victims of sexual abuse and chronic runaways. Very similar stats. A average age was about 14. And they trained their patrol officers to read between the lines and look for those, those clues that they may be a trafficking victim. If you find a kid that's with an older person and you ask them a question and they defer to the older person who tries to speak for them, that's a red flag. Um, there's some other ones as well. So the, 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 there were a number of ways that were used to measure if a child would be in the high-risk victim category, and one was if they went missing greater than four times in a 12-month period. That was alone. The other ones, or if a child went missing for longer than 30 days. So it was that, or four times for any length of time in the course of a year. Or if the first time they ran away, she was age 12, or the child was age 12 or younger. So there were these kinds of indicators, um, as well as other information. Um, there were commonly 8 to 13 unsubstantiated CPS reports. I mean, there, were, there was clearly a way you could identify um, these kids, and it was important to behave proactively because the kids were not going to ask for help. They didn't even, you know, you know recognize what was going, going on with them. And so this model, just to kind of give some snaps to MPD, um, you know, we were trying to just sort of gather this data um, just on a case-by-case -case, um, matter, working with um, law enforcement, working with juvenile reception center, um, and Briar Patch is doing it, and it became part of a, this model now is being collected, the data is being collected by the Wisconsin Department of Justice, but I have to say that MPD kind of was at the forefront of trying to identify these kids, not to stigmatize them, but just to kind of be looking out for them, um, because um, they weren't going to ask for help, and so we're trying to, you know, proactively get a sense of who's vulnerable. The, the, um, the, the, when we were looking at the data and the kids we knew, it was, it was like 100% accurate. So mm -hmm. um, that, that those factors, those missing periods of time, either at a young age or frequently made them vulnerable. Right, so. yeah. Oftentimes we were able to get in touch with these families on, the, on the, the front end when the kids start to go missing. And sometimes we might work with them for two or three years and we really get to know them well. And so we, sometimes we can keep them out of it Sometimes they get involved in it anyway, and so I, you know, when you have to look at these online ads and see them advertised for sale on online, it's like getting punched in the stomach. It's really hard. So um, that's why it's so important to try to do this this work. And, it, and it's really important. We want identification to not be a negative experience. So we need people to be trained and to be trauma informed and you know, victim centered. Um, yeah. Just wanting to kind of bookend that with, yes, we want to be able to know who the vulnerable kids are, but also we're working at creating appropriate services, trauma-informed, victim-centered, because identification cannot be a negative experience for these kids. We want it to um, um, be helpful. However, you know, over the years, the kids are wanting help. Right. Yeah. And it, it's such a collaborative effort. It can't be just a law enforcement solution or a human services solution. It's, it's a collaborative effort. And... Project Respect does amazing work for victims in trying to extricate them from this. So Sergeant Fawcett from Dallas PD, he testified about this on Capitol Hill, and he had some quotes, and I just think they're salient. He said, we try to stabilize the child, in the, and in the process, we end up getting the perpetrators. More than three-fourths of the children contacted turn out to be involved in prostitution. They're offered treatment and services to recover from street life. 
and we're going to help one of the most vulnerable populations out there. So when we have child victims that are victims of child sexual abuse, child physical abuse, child neglect, and they're little, they're, they're completely defenseless, and we, we put a great deal of effort into helping them as, as we should, and that should continue on a beta. They, they can't protect themselves and their, their children, little children. When they grow up and they hit adolescence and they're not so little anymore, they can be sometimes not so easy to deal with or, or to work with, but they're still children and they still need us just as much as the little ones do. And so that's really important just to keep that in mind is that they're, they're still part of the most vulnerable population just as much as the, the little ones are. So what they do in, um, in Dallas is they have a, a place called the, the Dallas Lee Tote Center, and I'm not sure what the acronym stands for, but when they have a recovered kid that's a victim of trafficking, they have this center, and it's a 40-bed uh, center, and it's a combination. They have private resources pooled with county government resources, and then they offer these kids a chance not to go back out onto the street where they're going to be re-victimized by their, their pimps. And they can get treatment for substance abuse, for trauma, uh, for trafficking. And when it's possible, they, the family re reunification is a big part of that. So, so, the, um, so statewide, there is a task force of the, um, convened by the Department of Justice and Department of Children and Families that is trying to create a protocol to use in the first um, 72 hours of recovering someone. And that um, we're looking at um, the kind of models that are out there in the LITOT Center. Um, we're look it's a, it's a um, combination of the county human services in that area and like the Junior League or something, like a women's civic group um, that came together to found the LITOT Center. Um, but it has been, the, I, I, I think that the, um, the adults, when we talk to the kids, if, if, in a way that I think understands or you know, um, doesn't add more to the negative stigma that is part of their lives, you know, I, I have to say that the kids want help. Mm -hmm. Even the more difficult person who might already be recruiting or somebody who you know, might appear to be just really out of control, when you get her talking with her about what's been going on, I would say that it's been the experience of those of us who meet with these um, victims that um, they're basically what, what the liter literature shows is kind of behaving like juvenile vigilantes. They're not trusting us to take care of them, and so they go to people that you can't trust to take care of them. Um, whether, you know, um, um, and they're mitigating <laughs> their abuse on their own. And so um, in that sense, what they're doing, make, you know, is rational. Um, so I just want you to have that context as, as well. Right. And it, it seems like these victims, they come from every part of the city. It, it's, it's just based on risk factors. It's not based upon... Um, ethno, uh, socioeconomic status or neighborhood, it's kids that are at risk and vulnerable to people that want to exploit them. So, yeah. open for questions. Did you have any questions? It seems like we're getting close to your meeting. Yeah. I don't know if it comes on. It does. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much oh, for all welcome. your work. Um, Jen, I had a question for, for you, um, and I know you, you, know, you were trying to focus on not foreign-born um, victims, but um, 
I know that Unidos is an organization that works with you, and, and I work with them on my day job a lot. And so I, I, there is a context also in our own city of foreign-born so immigrant right. trafficking victims that yeah. seems to be in, ha, in increasing. Yes, we have um, worked with adult and ch ch child um, um, non, uh, not U.S. citizen um, victims, and there was a time period. We have a U.S. Department of Justice grant, and we subcontract with Unidos because there was a time where we were seeing a number of juvenile Latinas that were being um, trafficked. Um, they may be citizens or not. Maybe their parents might not be citizens, um, but there are provisions that protect their presence in the U.S., and so that should not be a factor to get getting help. You know, um, but 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 um, you know you you the, you want to make sure they access the um, the people who know about those benefits. Right. Right. But Unidos is doing a great job. Right, and there is a trafficking visa program as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the other thing I was going to ask you, so how, and without like wanting to be nosy, but you are doing such great work. I'm wondering like what kind of sources of funding you, you receive mm -hmm. to be able to continue your, your right, work right. in the program. So so the we, we are funded by the Community Services Commission, which is really okay. the 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 yeast um, for us. Um, the I, I have to say that the city of Madison had the foresight, you know, over thirty years ago to recognize the conditions that women in prostitution face. Um, the city of Madison did that, maybe five other US cities um, were looking at the victimization of women in, in, in prostitution. And in 2000, the federal government passed the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. The difference between juveniles and adults, adults, you have to find elements of forced fraud and coercion. The juveniles, you don't have to. Um, uh, and also under the federal and state law, you really can use it to enforce um, violations upon the buyers of sex as well, not just the um, people who are facilitating the, the, the demand. Um, and then in the state law that passed in 2008, it had this piece that um, talked about um, using um, controlled substances to control someone. And then also in the state law, it changed about two years ago um, to take out um, the word consent and um, to look at all of it as um, uh, the, the coercion, right? And, and to look at the coercive sort of uh, factors um, which might cause it to appear that there's consent. So I think the, I, I'm not sure what, uh, so, so, so given all of these um, pieces, we do get funding from the United States Department of Justice and the Wisconsin Department of Justice as well. Um, but, you know, we serve people at respect, just so that you folks know, because you've seen me here before uh, from time to time, no matter how somebody gets involved, so somebody um, doesn't want to um, use the um, provisions of the anti-human trafficking laws and they still want to get out, you know, we're there for them. It's, um, there is, juveniles, it's a different situation about working with law enforcement and making reports. Um, so we, um, I think we could just say that we've, um, you know, in the past, before the um, anti-human trafficking laws, women who were assaulted um, in the course of being involved in prostitution weren't protected because they were assaulted when they were committing a crime. So these are just new ways that we're looking at what happens. Um, and so now, um, because of this new frame, people can, if they meet the criteria, can access Victim of Crime Act funds. So it's just a progression in how we um, view this. Not everyone is protected. 
um, but those that you can prove these elements. So it's kind of a, um, uh, a progression, um, but the, the, the shout out to Madison is really having the foresight 30 years ago before drug courts and, and, and all of that um, to try and divert people away. Because for me, and I, I could go on, so I should shut up. But um, it does, um, how we got involved with the kids is we're just seeing so many ki uh, adults that were just kind of ending up in, in the criminal justice system. But let me say we do have, um, and I think where we could expand is outreaching to boys um, because um, we do um, receive um, uh, male victims, but the models are needing to have you know, providers that are male and so forth. So if there was a piece that we could add, it would be for programs that, that outreach and serve male victims more specifically. Oh, long you. answer. Thank you so much. I don't know that we have any time for more questions.